Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, the podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction works. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author Douglas Burgess, whose book, When Hope and History Rhyme, Natural Law and Human Rights from Ancient Greece to Modern America, is being published by Charles Bridge, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Doug. Good afternoon. Would you start us off with a brief excerpt from your book, please? Sure, I'd be glad to. In the Oval Office of the Obama White House was a carpet of the president's own design. Inspirational quotations circled its perimeter, including one from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. In January 2017, Donald Trump promptly had the carpet removed. It was well he did. One can only imagine the golden letters enduring four years of neglect and debasement, pressed down by the heels of countless sycophants, quislings, criminals, and a few outright traitors. Yet the most indelible marks would have been left by the president himself. Historians will need decades to sort through the pile of Donald Trump's enormities, a heap so vast and varied that its commission in a mere four years beggars belief. What stands out most are the gravity-bending contradictions, deep cynicism coupled with infantile incompetence, amorality and extremism, xenophobia and a fondness for dictators, belligerence and an unquenchable thirst for praise. President Trump was a man who flirted with authoritarianism, yet lacked the courage of even a Stalin or Pinochet to pull the trigger himself. There is a pattern here. The Trump administration was marked by a wholesale retreat from all responsibility, personal and presidential, foreign and domestic. The federal government withdrew protections from its most vulnerable citizens and actively moved to disenfranchise many more. Its foreign policy amounted to a refutation of all international obligations. Having led the world in the promulgation of human rights for 75 years, the United States walked off the stage. The vacuum was quickly noticed. The governments of Russia, China, Turkey, and others acted swiftly to consolidate their power, moving against minority groups and political opponents that had long sought refuge from the United States. As a result, four years of strongman Trump weakened the United States and emboldened its enemies in exact proportion. Not since the Second World War had the cause of human rights reached such a nadir. It therefore became the imperative and urgent task of the next administration to craft a new understanding of right and justice for the next century, with a commitment to the United States' re-engagement with the world. If nothing else, the four Trump years cogently demonstrated the folly of isolationism. However, there is also a danger of overcorrection. Neoconservatives harken back to the Cold War presidencies of Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan for inspiration when America was a city on a hill shining its democratic beacon around the world. But after Trump, any attempt to blithely reassume the mantle of moral supremacy would be met with ridicule. The United States must earn its allies' trust. This can only be done through good faith and commitment to a clearly articulated vision of the world we seek to create. And while that task may be great, President Joe Biden has advantages, some more apparent than others. Trump's appalling record on human rights had one unintended benefit. For the first time in decades, human rights are no longer viewed through the narrow prism of Western democratic values. The conversation has changed. Moreover, the language of rights is no longer exclusively the province of states or non-governmental organizations. The global pandemic accelerated a process already well underway as new alliances formed and transnational communities coalesced around shared values. Forced confinement produced a moment of pause and reckoning that led many to question assumptions they had long taken for granted. The result was an upsurge of social activism. 
In the United States, for example, the murder of George Floyd detonated a powder keg of suppressed rage against racial injustice fueled by the president's reactionary response. Hundreds of thousands took to the streets. Yet in the midst of social economic crisis greater than any in living memory, something new and extraordinary emerged. I can't believe I'm going to say this, activist and author Tanahasi Coates declared in June 2020, but I see hope. I see progress. The expression of that hope, the very idea of progress, is rooted in a profound faith in natural rights. At rallies, vigils, and marches throughout the United States, protesters articulated an ancient truth transcending class and race. No one should fear the state that protects them. But why should that be so? On what basis do we claim a right or demand that the state honor it? The answer, not coincidentally, also provides the path for American re-engagement on human rights. Thanks for that, Doug. Could you elaborate on what you mean by natural law, which is in your subtitle, and you just referred to natural rights? So what do you mean by that, and what is that uh, distinct from? Well, the idea of natural law in Western society goes all the way back to ancient Greece, and it's the idea that there is a law which transcends uh, humanity itself. Uh, and it's been understood stood in various times as the mind of Jupiter or the mind of God or uh, law that exists in nature. It's not the law of the jungle. It's not like uh, some kind of scientific principle. It's that independent of human agency, there is such a thing as abstract justice. And what that looks like, just to give you one example, uh, when the Nazi defendants were brought forward at the Nuremberg tribunals in 1945, there was no international criminal law. It didn't exist. So nothing that the Nazis had done was technically criminal. It was simply immoral. And uh, when Robert Jackson, the prosecutor, addressed the court for the first time, he said that civilization is the real complaining party at the bar here. Um, that the only way that we can even conceive of civilization or law or society or anything is if we accept that there are some crimes, some actions that transcend state law. And he spoke very directly about this idea of natural law. So you referenced, um, you know, the origins in ancient Greece. But is there a way in which natural law can be sort of decoupled from the idea of religion or a divinity that, metaphorically speaking, you know, sort of handed down at Sinai or somewhere else. So for those people who have, you know, who don't believe or are agnostic, um, you know, how can they understand the concept of natural law? Well, I mean, this is a project that, that the work has already been done for me all the way back in the 16th and 17th centuries. It was actually uh, Western philosophers that decoupled the idea of natural law from the mind of God. Um, and I think the Probably the most famous example of this was the Dutch 17th century philosopher Hugo Grotius, who wrote that this, all these things would be true. In other words, natural law would still exist, even if God himself did not exist, that the impulse towards justice didn't require uh, divinity. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make, um, even some scholars, is to assume that natural law is the same thing as divine or even biblical law. And it's not. Uh, in fact, it's it's not a Western construction or a, a religious construction at all. You can find elements of it in 
every single legal code I've ever studied, Western or non-Western, um, and practically every civil society. So it's something that I go into some length in the book to try and distinguish from is this idea that, yes, if you look at uh, the history of, of the idea of natural law in the West, from the ancient world until the late Middle Ages, it is associated with some kind of divine impulse. Um, but from the early or yeah, early Renaissance on, that's really just not the case. So you referenced ancient Greece, and you also, in your comments just now, sort of talked about you know this being something universal, near universal, in all the legal codes that you've studied. Uh, apart from ancient Greece, and I assume, uh, I, I believe you touch upon Rome in the book as well, are there other ancient civilizations that you think are particularly relevant to the issue as it is before us today? Oh, for sure. Um, I I had to kind of go beyond my comfort zone in looking at some of the legal constructions, uh, you know, non-Western, because most of my background is sort of common law history. But I found some absolutely remarkable uh, texts in ancient uh, Indian law, um, so subcontinent Indian law, that talk about some of the same uh, natural rights that we would associate uh, with the Constitution, the Bill of Rights today. Um, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to borrow the phrase from Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, you find those ideas expressed uh, in ancient legal codes in India, you find it in, uh, in ancient uh, Middle Eastern legal codes. In fact, uh, if you look at that, that quartet, uh, life, liberty, security, property, those are the natural rights that exist in Western law. And those are also the natural rights that are to be found in, I think, as I say, every legal code that I've, that I've examined, Western or not. So I wanted to actually look at uh, or talk about something that's before your introduction. You dedicate the book to your father, and you state that he taught you to, quote, honor the truth, unquote. Can you talk a little bit about how he did so? My dad said to never be afraid of unpopular opinions. Um, and I, he sent me to a, a Quaker school as a, as a prep school. And that was actually, for the honor of truth, was the motto of the school. And uh, it's, a, it's sort of an odd story, but when I was a senior at that school, we had a sort of a crisis of conscience at the school, and I was sort of asked to get involved. And I came to him, I said, you know, this, is, this may cost me friendships. Um, and my father said, don't worry about that, that, that the only thing that matters is the honor of truth. And I've kept that with me all these years, um, right up until the present day. I mean, this this book was actually motivated by the death of my partner some almost 20 years ago now, um, someone else who was instrumental in teaching me to honor the truth. So that, that idea has been with me for a very long time. So early on in the book, you sort of give a little bit of the roadmap about, roadmap, excuse me, about what's to follow and talking about uh, three propositions that you are advancing. And I'm just going to sort of read them uh, we'll start with the first one and just ask you to sort of expand upon the heading for the section. So the first one you, uh, you state is, in order to progress beyond stale debate, the United States must decouple itself from a Western democratic understanding of human rights. So could you explain what you mean by that? Oh, for sure. I think that even those presidents and those administrations, uh, if you look at the last 75 years or so, those presidents that have been uh, ardent proponents of human rights around the world still predicate the idea of right on Western democratic values. 
And I think you could see this probably most clearly in the administration of George W. Bush, where the idea, the central idea um, of Bush foreign policy was democracy first and democracy being a necessary precursor to the understanding of human rights. We have to democratize the world. And I think that that's that's cancerous, frankly. Um, I think that coupling an idea which is universal um, and non-Western to a, a predicate that is Western and a specific form of government, all that does is it reawakens these old debates ever since the uh, post-colonial period, which states talking about human rights as if this was a Western imperialist construction. And I feel like we have to move beyond that. And the only way to do that is to find a way of talking about human rights, um, a way of talking about universal rights that is entirely independent from uh, Western political values. So before we get to the next one, when you talk about presidents over the last 75 years, a little bit beyond my, my lifetime, but certainly during my lifetime, in terms of human rights, for many people, the first name that would pop into their head would be Jimmy Carter. Would you say that his approach to human rights and uh, America's attitude towards human rights was also uh, afflicted or... Uh, to its detriment, was connected with this Western vision? I think it was, but I don't think that we need to fault uh, President Carter or his, or his administration. Um, I think that every president, with the exception of Donald Trump, has made what they would believe to be a good faith effort to uphold human rights around the world. Um, but each president has defined that role differently. And I think to Carter's credit, he was really uh, one of those presidents that I think pushed the envelope as far as he felt it could be pushed in trying to have uh, not only this sort of Western democratic idea underlying rights, but also rights for their own sake. And he engaged with the United Nations and with the world community um, in a way that I think very few presidents have done before or since. So it's actually, uh, I think, you know, people will probably remember him more for his work uh, after he left the presidency, um, which I think reaffirmed a lot of the work that he started when he was president. But looking at Carter's foreign policy from the lens of promoting uh, human rights around the world, I mean, he was an extraordinary man. So the second proposition you, you talk about early on, which obviously it's carried through the book, just read that. The United States and other nations must distinguish between fundamental rights based on natural law and other rights. So if you could expand on that. Yes, of course. So I think that uh, even those people, whether they're in uh, government or not, those people who would consider themselves active proponents of human rights, they often don't have a clear grasp of which rights they're promoting. Um, and especially if you look at the documents that have come out of the United Nations for really the last 50 years or so, they're simply laundry lists. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, which was first uh, introduced in 1948, has 30-some-odd provisions uh, in which the right to life is uh, listed alongside the right to receive royalties. But there's nothing in the document that says that one right preferences over the other. And in fact, most of the language coming out of the UN serves to reinforce this idea that all rights are universal, or all rights are, are of equal importance, and all rights are interconnected. And that First of all, that's simply not the case. Um, but 
more to the point, that gives an opening for states that might not be receptive uh, to this rights conversation to preference some rights over others. Uh, and this is a problem because if you don't have a foundation, you can't build your house. And right now, I, st I think we're still kind of working on the foundation. And, and the final one in your introduction, quote, the United States and other nations must pledge to absolutely enforce natural law rights, unquote. Yes. So once we've distinguished this very limited list of rights uh, that are absolute and universal, these are the rights, same ones that Franklin Roosevelt identified in 1944. Um, these are the rights that, that we have to preference above all others and do our utmost uh, to, to ensure are protected around the world. And this, I think, is probably, of all of the propositions, the most contentious one, because taken to its logical conclusion, and I think what's happening as we speak is a perfect example of this, someone might read that and say, oh, he wants us to get into war everywhere on the world. No, not at all. Um, I think actually what's happening right now with the, the punitive sanctions that are being uh, levied against Russia is a perfect example of doing everything we can without incurring some extraordinary danger to ourselves. I think that the United States and other nations should be willing to put something on the table, should be willing to incur financial hardship, economic hardship, um, even in the most extreme cases, uh, to use their militaries to, to intervene. But under those circumstances, I think it would be something more along the lines of uh, a genocide underway or something like, like that. But yeah, I think a, a good faith commitment to natural law rights has to include some kind of uh, not just a declaration of intent, but action. And that's, I think, what's been largely absent from this conversation for a long time. So had you written this book after the Russian invasion, is there anything that would have changed? Well, probably not, because, I mean, I could have written this book after the Vietnam War. I could have written this book uh, really at any point in the last 65, 75 years, and there would have been some sort of conflict somewhere in the world that somebody would be saying that we should get involved in. Um, and human rights abuses, unfortunately, are as universal as, as history itself. So no, there's never been a calm moment. Um, I, I'm obviously where we're at right now, there's more, uh, what's happening in, uh, in the Ukraine is, is front and center in the news and especially America's uh, role in responding to that, but it's not unique. Um, so no, I don't think it would change. I think if anything, more examples, more incidents uh, like the Russian invasion of Ukraine only kind of reinforce this idea that uh, we have to do everything that, that's within our power to do to uphold human rights. And to be fair, I think that, that one thing that has changed um, really in the last couple of weeks or so is that a lot of the uh, cynicism um, a lot of the apathy that I had seen sort of creeping into the conversation, especially during the presidency of, of Donald Trump, um, this idea that, oh, human rights are a Western construction or, oh, you know, liberal democracies don't really they've lost the, the moral authority to speak on the world stage. So much of that is falling by the wayside right now. And there is a, a reinvigoration of globalism, um, a reinvigoration reinvig of uh, liberal democratic values that I haven't seen in my lifetime. 
And that's happening just, you know, in, in real time and extraordinarily quickly. So I suppose the only thing that I would have liked to have been able to say at the other end of however this, this horrific war turns out is, um, is to be able to put that note in that, that we may actually end up in a better place than we were before, uh, because we are, are re, we and other nations are re-engaging with this idea of rights in a way that we simply hadn't been. So apart from those observations, is there anything else that you can leave our listeners with, with a basis for hope, given that, you know, as you articulate, you know, in the book, some of what you are advocating for, you know, is going to strike some people as utopian? Well, that very idea of utopian, that's actually kind of the the jumping off point for what I'm trying to say. We will never reach utopia. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt gave a famous speech uh, not long before he passed away, actually, in which he talked about this idea that we will never actually reach utopia. Um, but it's not about reaching it. It's about getting closer to it. And this is that upward path of human progress that Roosevelt and many others have spoken of. This idea that it's not about the destination, but the journey. And if you look at uh, understandings of human rights, if you look at even just most basically how we behave towards one another as individuals within society and as as states on the, on the global stage, it's impossible not to look at the last 500 years, just to pick almost an arbitrary number, and see progress, real progress and evolution. And to look at the last century, you see that progress uh, go up exponentially. Um, the very idea of international criminal law, of holding a head of state criminally liable for the actions done to their own citizens, that's only been around since 1945. So we're at this transitional moment in history where we now have an understanding of uh, real global responsibility that just didn't exist a century before. So I think that there's more than a reason for optimism. I think there's, there's a reason, you know, there's, there's cause for joy. And the, the cynicism that I often have to respond to um, and the sense that, oh, you know, nothing really happens and the UN is just a talking shop and nothing's ever going to change. That's, that's only if you look really <laughs> at the exact moment in time that you're living in. If you zoom out just a little bit and look at what came before, an entirely different and really much more hopeful picture emerges. Well, it's a, I think a good place to, to leave it. Uh, thank you for your time today, Doug, and thank you, listeners. The book, again, is Douglas Burgess's When Hope and History Rhyme, Natural Law and Human Rights from Ancient Greece to Modern America, published by Charles Bridge. Please join us again soon for the next LitCast. <laughs>